This morning, we are still uh, in this, uh, this concept of restoration, still talking about the concept of restoration as we have the past couple of weeks. And uh, again, you know, just if you weren't here the past couple of weeks, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the broad concept of restoration, you know, wh- what it means when the Bible talks about uh, going back to the original scriptures. And again, we looked at King Josiah, really his account there in 2 Kings 22 and 23 uh, of how he had found the, the old law uh, in, in the temple and they restored the land to uh, what they were not doing properly. And then last week we began looking at a specific thing in scripture where we said that uh, the restoration needs to start taking place in, in some places. And we looked at church organization. You know, we, we talked about the eldership, we talked about the autonomy in Scripture and how a lot of churches have sort of moved away from those uh, things, and we need to get back to that. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to look at another topic of restoration. This time, as you see above me, uh, the gospel plan of salvation. In the early 1800s, there was a traveling evangelist who had this unique uh, teaching technique, and what he would do is what, when he came into a new town... Uh, What he did was he didn't go to the adults first. He went and gathered all the children of the town and got them together and he would teach them uh, the gospel by using his hand. And so he would uh, tell them uh, uh, faith and repentance and baptism, remission of sins and uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what he was really, uh, you know, teaching them was Acts chapter 2, 38. Uh, And he would drill them, you know, time after time while they were all gathered around him until they were comfortable, until they knew uh, that that five finger plan, uh, as we often refer to it. And then he'd tell them to go home, tell it to their parents and then come out and he would be preaching the gospel that night. And he was very successful at this uh, technique. And this man, uh, if you're familiar with uh, American Restoration history, was a man by the name of Walter Scott. Uh, Walter Scott was born in Scotland. But like so many during that time came to America, not just to get away from, you know, repressive governments, but also to uh, get away from uh, religion uh, that, uh, that they no longer felt as if uh, they, they should be controlled by it. Uh, they wanted to leave uh, their denominations, their creeds, and they wanted to stick to the Bible only. And so uh, many individuals uh, were doing this during this time. Uh, again, Walter Scott baptized some 1,000 individuals in his lifetime uh, during his evangelism. And he's actually buried in Maeslick, uh, Kentucky, which I believe is somewhere uh, northeast of Lexington. But again, he made famous the this, this sort of this five-finger exercise that we still uh, use today. And maybe we're more familiar uh, with the, the term, you know, gospel plan of salvation. You know, hear, believe, repent, confess, and baptize, be baptized. You know, that's the five-finger illustration that we sometimes teach our children in, in class. And we... Um, as we read through the book of Acts, and I provided on my outline this morning, uh, if you were able to pick up an outline this morning on the back side, I provided the uh, chart uh, of all of the uh, conversions in the book of Acts. And we're going to look at one of those in particular. But you notice in this chart, it'll show you, you know, what verse that, uh, that the hearing took place and the believing and repenting, confessing and be baptized. And so maybe that'll be helpful for you this morning. But uh, before we jump into that, uh, when, when I was in preaching school, 
And uh, we had the opportunity to go and fill in in various places around Knoxville. Uh, I, I went to a congregation, a, a big congregation one Sunday morning uh, near Chattanooga, uh, Tennessee. And this is probably the largest crowd that I had the opportunity to speak in front of. I mean, there was 250, 300 uh, Christians within this congregation. Uh, the local preacher was on vacation. And, and I delivered you know, my sermon and offered the invitation, you know, I offered that gospel plan of salvation. You know, if you haven't done these things, hear the word of God, believe that Jesus is the Son of God, repent of sins, confess that Jesus is Lord, and be baptized. Well, after the lesson, I was approached by an older gentleman. And he came up to me, and he thanked me for the lesson. And then he said something that was stunning to me, that, that shocked me. He said, you know, I appreciate it when the preacher gives the gospel plan of salvation or, or, or tells the people how one must be saved at the end of his sermons because we just don't hear that anymore here. And that shocked me. Uh, you know, shockingly, at that time, maybe being a little uh, naive uh, while going through gospel, or preaching school, I thought all gospel preachers taught the plan of salvation, uh, especially during the invitation, of, uh, because that's you know, what we want people to know as they leave the door. Now, I know it depends on, you know, who you're preaching to. Maybe on some Sunday nights you don't have any visitors in the audience, and so uh, maybe uh, you don't go too much in depth that way. But, again, that is a question that all preachers and all uh, who, you know, get before individuals and teach, uh, they want everyone to think about that question, right? What must I do? This is a question that a handful of individuals we see in Scripture ask. And it's a question that is still asked today by those seeking truth. Again, we, we see in the religious world today, in Christianity, that it has veered from the old Jerusalem gospel. You know, that gospel that was preached 2,000 years ago, starting in Jerusalem. Pre Peter preached Jesus of Nazareth. He was approved by God, attested by God, who performed many miracles and signs and wonders among the people in their midst. And then Peter said, you nailed him to the cross by the hands of the Romans, and that God raised him up, that he placed him at his right hand, and he has ascended to heaven, and now he's at God's right hand. And remember, that sermon pierced their hearts. It pierced their hearts. It wounded their consciences. And the question of what shall we do that they asked was answered by the Apostle Peter. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 39. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Again, they asked the question, what do we need to do in order to be saved? And Peter said, repent and be baptized. But then focus on verse 39 because it says, for this promise is for you and your children. Right? This is for the Jewish nation and for all who are far off. He, he's giving us a glimpse of the Gentiles, alluding to the Gentiles, the Jews and the Gentiles. This will be for everyone. This promise is for you. It is for everyone, for those who repent and are baptized. Well, again, the question we asked this morning is what's going on in the world today? You know, why is that message not preached from all pulpits, from all churches? Again, here's another example of why we need to go back to the scriptures 
and see what was happening during that time and restore such a thing as the gospel plan of salvation. Well, before we jump into our our text in Acts chapter 16, let's talk about a few plans of salvation that we see uh, in Christianity today. You know, there are some who, who, who practice a works-based salvation. That is, you know, you need to do such and such here, such and such there, and you're going to merit yourself into heaven. There are those who maybe have more of a Calvinistic flavor to their, their Christianity, where, where they'll teach that, you know, there's nothing that you can do or say uh, that will uh, put you in God's saved category. But God selected, he predetermined, he elected the people who he's going to save one day. You know, if you're elected, you have no control, no matter how good you've lived or no matter how bad you've lived. It all depends on who God predetermined. Or there's universalism. You know, this says that at the end of the day, you know, God's going to save everyone. You know, there are churches who teach that, that God's not going to punish anyone. And that Satan and hell, you know, the things that Jesus talked most about in Scripture, those things uh, were just tools to scare and to trick uh, individuals into uh, listening to him. Or there's those who, who teach sincerity alone. Again, you know, just be a good person. Just live a good moral life and you'll be fine at the end. But again, uh, and we'll jump into this verse a little bit later in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and 23. Jesus said, you know, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But probably the most popular of all of these uh, plans of salvation today that, that we hear about is the idea of faith alone. You know, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, is the, the champion of this idea. Because that verse is taken, and it's the only verse that is used. It's not John chapter 3, verse 5. You know, just a few verses prior to that is never mentioned, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Nor do they mention John chapter 3, verse 36, the last verse in that chapter, where Jesus compares uh, obedience and faithfulness and believing uh, with the same way. You know, some have even re- gone on and rejected the book of James because of what James wrote in James chapter 2, verse 24. He said, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Again, some have uh, taken uh, James out of uh, Holy Scripture because James says you are not saved by faith alone. But if we were to you know, construct a time machine... You know, if that was even possible and get in that time machine and and set it for the first century, go back in time and ask that question. What must I do to be saved to to the apostles, to the Christians that were living in that era, that era? Would we get answers like accept Jesus Christ in your heart as your personal savior? And that's all you need to do. Or would we get answers like, well, just say this prayer and you'll be fine. You know, and I say this in all sincerity. When, when I read through the scriptures, when I read through the New Testament, I don't ever read uh, a person who was converted to Christianity coming to Christ by offering a prayer, by being saved by saying a prayer. You know, sometimes they, you'll get literature, uh, you know, a tract you might find at the gas station, uh, people who are promoting uh, this idea, and they'll say, you know, they'll, sometimes they'll just say, you know, offer a prayer to God, and sometimes they'll actually give you an example of the prayer that you are to say. Uh, it'll say something to this effect. Heavenly Father, 
I know that I am a sinner and that I deserve to go to hell. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I do now receive him as my Lord and personal Savior. I promise to serve you to the best of my ability. Please save me in Jesus' name. Amen. And this is what we often hear or refer to as the sinner's prayer. But again, I cannot find this when I read through the scriptures a prayer that was offered and then that individual was saved. Every single conversion account that we read about in the book of Acts, we never read of someone encouraged to simply pray for their salvation. Matter of fact, you know, if we were to go back to the look at the life of Paul, you know, he was Saul of Tarsus. He's on that road to Damascus. Remember, and, and Jesus blinds him and he's blind for three days. And we're told during the three day period that he was praying. He was praying earnestly. If there was anyone in scripture that could have been saved by saying a prayer, it would have been the Apostle Paul, right? The chiefest of all sinners. Yet he was told that he must go and see a man by the name of Ananias and that Ananias would tell him what he must do. And of course, that is recorded for us in Acts chapter 22, verse 16. Now, why do you delay? Ananias said, get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on your name, on his name. If you're still in the book of Acts, uh, maybe you're in Acts chapter two still notice in Acts chapter two, verse 21. Because this is where a lot of people will claim that, that the sinner's prayer uh, is within Scripture. Or that uh, or this is where they prove this. And so Acts chapter 2 verse 21, Peter says this. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know, this is a prophecy that, that Joel spoke, the, the minor prophet Joel in, in Joel chapter 2, verse 32, that Peter is now uh, using here on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He, he's quoting the scripture. Uh, it's also, again, uh, mentioned in Acts twenty-two sixteen, and also Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Well, what does it mean to be called or to call on Jesus to be saved? Well, again, it, it certainly does not mean a verbal plea for help or a prayer. Because again, if we go back to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but it's he who does the will of my Father who will enter. So merely saying a prayer uh, does not match up with what Jesus says here, that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who prays to me, uh, to does something in my name will enter the kingdom of heaven. But uh, when we read the book of Acts, you know, and the author of the book of Acts is Luke, he equates calling to obeying. You know, if calling on the name of the Lord results in salvation, as we see here in chapter 2, verse 21, and then Peter in verse 38 tells us that if we repent and are baptized, uh, we'll have forgiveness of sins. You know, logically, uh, it follows that calling equates penitent baptism. To call on the name of the Lord is to obey uh, what has been given. Imploring God to apply Jesus' blood according to his plan. Actually, Acts chapter 22, verse 16 gives us the definition of calling on his name right in that verse. Again, get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Again, to call on his name, it involves an acceptance of all that Christ is and what he asks. You know, and this is a thing that Christians do throughout their Christian life. Second uh, Timothy chapter two, verse 22, calling on his name to call on his name. And again, this is a far cry from what the apostles taught to receive salvation. Again, if we were to go back in time and to ask the, the sinner's prayer is not found in the Great Commission. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you to the end of the age. The sinner's prayer is not found in any account in the book of Acts, in those conversion accounts. And so what we want to do this morning is we're going to briefly go over one of these and we're going to notice what God answered to what must I do to be saved. You know, again, if you talk to anyone who might have this sort of uh, background, this mindset, and I know, uh, you know, a lot of us are related uh, or are friends with individuals, you know, people who are dear to me, uh, use uh, this as their belief system that, you know, all I have to do is believe. And they'll say, you know, hearing, yeah, we're fine with that. Believing, yeah, of course, you have to believe. Uh, con- repentance, yeah, I, I go with that. And confession, but baptism, that's where it ends for, for most of them. Uh, many still practice baptism now, but the baptism that they practice comes much longer after uh, the point where they say they were saved. Right? Because, because baptism to them is just an outward sign that, that they have been saved. And so it's okay to schedule uh, a baptism two, three, four weeks out from the point that they believe uh, that they uh, received their salvation. But again, the, re- the restoration concept, you know, the, every passage about baptism and salvation that we read about in Scripture, baptism always precedes salvation. It always precedes it. And so, again, let's go back to the Bible. Let's restore what was taught in the first century. Let's see what it says. And so I'm going to be in Acts chapter 16 again the, this morning as we look at one of these conversion accounts, the Philippian jailer. You know, Paul and Silas, they're on their second missionary journey, you know, and they, they come over to what we know as Europe, uh, that, the continent Europe. And they're there, and they meet their first convert, uh, a woman by the name of Lydia. But shortly after they spend time with Lydia uh, there, and, and, and they move on, Paul and Silas, they get mixed up with a uh, a slave girl and her masters who, you know, they were profiting off her fortune telling, the, the scheme that she was, she was possessed by an unclean spirit. And they were using her to profit, to make money off of her by this fortune telling scheme that she was doing. And she was bugging Paul uh, during these days as they were traveling. And so if you remember, Paul commanded that this unclean spirit uh, leave this young girl. And so he removes the unclean spirit and, of course, the, her masters were outraged that he had done this because, you know, there goes their profit. There goes their money-making scheme. And so they take Paul and Silas and they drag him to the authorities of the town. They say that these men are causing a stir. They're teaching things that uh, we have no idea what's going on. And so Paul and Silas, they are beaten. They're thrown not only into prison, but the Bible says the inner prison into a dungeon. You know, in the Jewish law... Uh, when, when, uh, when someone was uh, beaten, uh, the, the Jewish law, according to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 3, said the Jews were allowed to give 40 lashes. Now, they didn't always give 40 lashes because uh, they gave 39 because they didn't want to uh, maybe miscount, miscalculate and actually go over the 40 and then uh, be guilty of that. And so they always did 39. Well, this was the Romans given this punishment. And we don't know how many blows that Paul and Silas received there in verse 23, but it says many blows, or maybe your translation says many stripes that they received. Look at verse 25. 
But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Isn't that amazing? Paul and Silas there in the dungeon, in the inner prison, with chains, in the stocks, and they're singing, they're praying to God, they're keeping their spirits high. Everyone around them is listening to this, and this miraculous earthquake happens. Now, how do I know that this wasn't just some regular earthquake, but a miraculous earthquake? Well, because every single cell door was open, we're told, and that every chain came off, was unfastened. You know, no walls crumbled, nobody died because of this. But the, the, again, the cell doors were open, the, the chains came off the people, and the Philippian jailer, supposing that everyone escaped because of this, you know, he was ready to commit suicide because he knew that he was going to be responsible for their lives for escaping. But Paul yells out, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the Philippian jailer, realizing that there's something about Paul and Silas, right, that these men are legit, he, he brings them out of the prison. Again, he asks that great question, sirs, what I, must I do to be saved? Again, let's notice how Paul and Silas answered this question. Brenton read this for us in verses 31 through 34. But again, let's read it one more time. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in the house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. You know, if we were to hold our hands up, as, as we talked about at the beginning of the sermon, you know, first we are going to notice a hearing, right? Uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 31. This is a verse that's often cited by those who teach faith alone, right? They'll put this in their pamphlets and say, this is what we believe. Go to Acts 16, verse 31. But they totally uh, deny the, the context around that. They don't continue reading to verses 32, 33, and 34, but look what follows. Again, verse 32 says, They spoke the word of the Lord to him and his household. What did they speak? You know, we don't know exactly, but it's safe to assume it was the gospel message about Jesus' birth, his ministry, you know, his teaching and his miracles, his death, burial, resurrection, his ascension. Earlier on in Acts chapter 8, when Philip is preaching to the Samaritans and to the Ethiopian eunuch, we're told that he preached Jesus to them. Meaning he, he preached uh, the kingdom of God, the church. He preached uh, the name of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. And by preaching Jesus to them, uh, we're told shortly that all of them were baptized. See, there's a basic level of truth that we need to understand before we are baptized for the forgiveness of our sins, to be scripturally baptized. Romans ten seventeen says our faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You know, our faith needs to be based on something, and we need to hear something, read something, be told something, and that is the word of Christ. So again, as we uh, move on in this uh, gospel account here in, in Acts chapter 16, 
Their faith was built and based on the word of the Lord. And then if we go to the, the next finger, believe again, we see that there in verses 31 and 34. They were told to believe in the Lord Jesus or excuse me. And then verse uh, in verse 34, they greatly rejoiced having believed in God. Go back to Acts chapter uh, 2 and Acts chapter 22 that we talked about this morning. You remember when the, the, the Jews and, the, and Paul was told what they must do? Right? We don't hear of them saying you need to believe because they already believed. They, at that point in their conversion account, uh, the, the Jews on Pentecost and, and Paul on the road to Damascus, or, or, when he goes and visits Ananias, they had already believed at that point. But here we have the Philippian jailer. He knows nothing about Jesus. He knows nothing uh, about his name. And so, uh, again, uh, he, Paul tells him that he needs to believe in the Lord Jesus. You know, we see that in Scripture as well. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 24, Therefore I said to you that unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Right? The Philippian jailer, he needed evidence, and it was presented to him in the word. Uh, to believe, to have faith, it's not a mere mental acknowledgement saying, yeah, I believe, or saying I'm going to take a blind leap of faith and hope that uh, he's real and that he's true. But biblical faith is always a blend of belief and trust and obedience. And when he was told to believe, we see the actions of his belief within these verses. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, uh, tells us that, uh, that faith... That our faith, uh, that we need to diligently seek it, that we cannot be approved by God without it. And so as he hears the word, he believes. The third thing we notice is repentance. Now, repentance, the word repentance, we don't see in this account specifically, but we see it um, implied here. You know, we have this man, this Philippian jailer who just, you know, beat Paul and Silas almost half to death. And Paul and Silas, you know, save his life by, by letting him know that they were all there and by not committing suicide as he was about to do that. And then he tells them how uh, they can be saved, how to rid their sin problem. You know, if that happened to you, you're probably going to feel a little bit of remorse, are you not? And so what was his actions there in verse 33? He took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right? He was pierced to the heart of what he did, the beating that he gave them. And so he washed their wounds. Or again, your, script, your, your translation might say stripes. Biblical repentance is not feeling sorry for yourself because you got caught. But it's a change of mind. It's godly sorrow. It's a change of life. Again, Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, verse 3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The fourth finger, we would notice confession. Now, again, confession is not specifically mentioned within this, this account. But when we go to some of the other accounts, like the Ethiopian eunuch, we notice that he confessed Jesus uh, before Philip. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, he says in Acts chapter 8, verse 37. You know, sometimes uh, the, the, parts, uh, you know, the parts of the finger here, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, uh, sometimes we see them implied in these accounts. But we know from Romans chapter 10, verse 10, for with the heart, a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth, he confesses resulting in salvation. 
Confessing and salvation are linked there in Romans chapter 10, verse 10. And so obviously we understand that the Philippian jailer confessed Jesus as Lord uh, in this account uh, so that he could receive that salvation. And then the fifth finger uh, on the plan of salvation, baptism. Again, verse 33, immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And I just want to point out two great facts about this, uh, this account here. Number one, we notice that the rejoicing came after the baptism. Again, look at verse 34. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God and his whole household. Right? There was no rejoicing and a party, if you will, before his baptism at the point of belief. But it was immediately after he was baptized, he and his household, then he brought them into his house and set food before them and greatly rejoiced. And again, just as I mentioned earlier, every time, every verse that we see in Scripture that connects baptism and salvation, baptism always precedes salvation. And the second great fact that we want to notice about this account is that the baptism was not delayed. Again, immediately uh, he was baptized, he and all his household. He didn't go and schedule a baptism uh, a couple of weeks down the road or wait until the church was offering some sort of baptism Sunday uh, where multiple people could come in and, and, you know, and have that baptism. But they understood that that baptism, there was urgency behind it. They understood that in order for him to wash away his sins, that he needed to be baptized. Again, this is just another great account within Scripture, within the book of Acts, of the conversion. And if we were to go and study every single one of those, uh, you know, on the back of that handout uh, that you'll see, you're going to see all five of these things uh, either directly or implied within those things. Again, as we wrap up our, our thoughts this morning, you know, you and I are to be involved in restoration today. You know, our task is not to... Uh, guard our own traditions, uh, to reflect our culture's views and desires, to do what we prefer to do, but it, or to blend in with the larger religious world. Right? But again, restoration is about God's pattern, his expectations, his purpose, glorified through his obedient church. If we want to please him, we have no choice. Again, we must be restorers. And that includes the gospel plan of salvation. This morning, as we offer the invitation, the word of God has been spoken here to you this morning. And you heard it. And maybe you've never submitted to the gospel call. Maybe, maybe you've never submitted to uh, what we see here in Scripture of those in the first century who became Christians. That they heard God's word. They believed that Jesus was the Son of God. They repented. I know that word is sometimes scary, repentance, but it just simply means to change your mind. That I was living a life contrary to Jesus, the Savior of the world, and now I'm changing my mind and I'm going to live a life for him. These individuals, they confessed Jesus as Lord before men, and they were baptized, immersed in water for the forgiveness of their sins. And at that point, Acts chapter 2, verse 47 tells us that they were added to the church. And on that great day in Acts chapter 2, the Lord... Uh, added 3,000 souls to the church that day. And if you'd submit to uh, the gospel plan of salvation that we read about uh, here in, in the book of Acts, you will be added to his church. Or also the, this morning, if you're here with us and, and you have been added to that church, uh, but maybe you know, your life is not as faithful as you'd like it to be, 
Uh, maybe you need to ask for forgiveness. Maybe you need prayers of encouragement. Again, this is no better time to do that before your brothers and sisters in Christ. This morning, if we can help you with any need, please let us know as together we stand and sing this song of invitation. There's a